0: Hello, Dr. Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry. Today is the 29th of December, 2021. And we just finished a six lecture series on adenosine monophosphate kinase as a regulator in metabolism. Told you that we're gonna be looking at key regulatory proteins, lipids, nucleic acids, as well as systems uh, as we run down the alphabet. And I told you I'd try to stick with going from A to Z, and I don't know that I will adhere to that all the time, but I'm going to proceed with at least part two in staying in the letter A. So today we're going to do the Appetitive Reward Pathway, which is going to be a series of lectures on neurobiochemistry. So let's just get right into this. So the Appetitive Reward Pathway is usually stimulated by intake by the human of necessary or highly desirable external components. These include things like nutrition, hydration, warmth, comfort, as well as sex. This reward pathway involves various subcortical regions that support the prefrontal cortex, and these include the VTA, which is the ventral tegmental area, and that connects to the nucleus accumbens and then to the prefrontal cortex. The neurons in the VTA contain dopamine, which is released in the nucleus accumbens and prefrontal cortex in response to whatever that rewarding stimulus is. Now, here's more detail. The major input to the relay and the reticular nuclei of the thalamus originates from the cholinergic cell groups in the upper pons, the peduncopontine and lateral dorsal tegmental nuclei. So these inputs basically facilitate a thalamocortical transmission. Second pathway activates the cerebral cortex to facilitate the processing of those inputs from the thalamus. Now, all of this arises from neurons in the monoaminergic cell groups, including the tuberomammillary nucleus containing histamine, and the A10 cell group, which contains more dopamine, and dorsal and medial ray nuclei containing serotonin. Finally, the locus coriolis contains noradrenaline. Now, this pathway also receives contributions from the peptidergic neurons in the lateral hypothalamus, and they contain things like orexin, or indeed melanin-concentrating hormone, or M. CH, and from the basal forebrain neurons that contain gamma aminobutyric acid or indeed acetylcholine. It's a little bit more detailed than the first level. Now, this mesolimbic system is basically a component of the CNS, and that's where the dopaminergic inputs from the VTA, the ventral tegmental area, indeed innervate, certain CNS regions involved an executive, affective, and indeed the motivational functional nuclei. And these are going to include, as I just said, the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, but also the amygdala and the NAC or the nucleus accumbens. So dysfunctions within that system have been known to contribute to certain neuropsychiatric disorders, including MDD, it's major depressive disorder, and indeed various forms of addictions. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that there's a critical um, aspect of the mesolimbic system in perceiving and modulating also chronic pain. And that is very important for pharmaceutical industry that's looking for potential pharmacotherapeutics in the pain locus. So Examining this uh, reward pathway, this appetitive reward pathway, under a chronic pain status could give us an understanding of the detrimental comorbidities that are associated with chronic pain, and these include depression, general anxiety, and also the potential for the appetitive addiction vulnerability. So clinical research has clearly shown there's a lot of comorbidity between pain and depression. And some of the studies suggest as much as 30%, while others are lower, more in the range of 10 to maybe 20 to 25%. This is all U.S. population. So there isn't a one-to-one correlation for pain and depression, but there is a substantial one. And this, of course, we talk more about chronic pain, not episodic pain, of course. So patients with a debilitating mental condition, and this can get severe, such as an MDD, also tend to have a higher comorbid chronic pain syndrome. And these sometimes uh, manifest themselves in the gut, but also in the cardiovascular region and also associated with migraines and other kinds of head uh, pain. So this the debilitating neuropsychiatric component, the major depressive disorder, um, and in associated with this chronic pain, reinforce one another. At least this is what's been described as psychiatric and in the psychological industries. So there's a real interest in managing chronic pain and therefore possibly managing, Neuropsychiatric disorders, and this is what a lot of the pharmaceutical um, derivations of things associated, for example, with serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake are involved in, because these are part of the reward system, as well as part of nociception, that is, pain reception. Now, we should also bring up this whole idea of addiction. So there are, of course, natural opioids, and these include the endorphins and sort of relatives to them in keflin. So these are peptides. And so the opiates that you obtain from plant sources, such as the opium poppy, including morphine, and then the acetylated form of, methyl- uh, of uh, morphine, heroin, those are considered analgesics because they work very well in the management of chronic pain. So you've got morphine, you've got oxycodone, and you also have a lot of other synthetic opioids like fentanyl, and they will show various efficacy for the treatment of chronic pain. And basically what they will do is produce hyperalgesia, right? Where the pain intensity actually seems higher with less stimulus relative to a normal pain response. So when there's an injury, you move the curve of normal pain response towards the left. When on your y-axis, you have pain intensity, and on the x-axis, you have stimulus intensity. So with less intense stimulus, you get a higher and more robust intensity of pain. And alledonia is way down at the bottom of that hyperalgesia curve, where some people will experience pain where the stimulus is not normally recognized as increasing above a pain threshold. And so both alledonia and hyperalgesia have been reported amongst uh, drug addicts and also in association sometimes with the neuropsychiatric disorders of both GAD, general anxiety disorder, and major depressive disorder. Now, there's been a tremendous increase in opioid analgesic addiction, and, and commiserate with that has been a huge increase in opioid analgesic prescription. And so because of that, in the last 10 years, many doctors are not uh, particularly willing to prescribe opioids as prescriptions for chronic pain, at least not having a recurring refilling of prescription this is because of the clamping down and that's primarily because of the abuse of the opioids including premature deaths um, both in the prescribed patient as well as in people who are um, obtaining these prescribed drugs from their relatives or from their friends overdosing and then uh, causing then this ripple effect of an increase in opioid addiction as well as the potential for opioid mortality. There's been a great deal of concern about this. This is all happening between 2000 and 2010, and then onward, and now since this pandemic, we've seen another huge increase in opioid addiction and in opioid-related deaths, particularly non-pharmaceutical associated fentanyl. So, We know that there is an affective and a nociceptive comorbidity involved here. And we know that it's all associated with this mesolimbic system, which I just briefly outlined already. And so it suggests that the vulnerabilities of the addictive um, modus and the depression or anxiety modus, those two different modalities, are probably associated relative with chronic pain, and then going back to the addictive um, manner. So, let's talk a little bit about this MCH. This is a hormone that doesn't get much discussion, and it is involved in the reward pathway. This is also known as the melanin concentrating hormone, and that hormone actually—it's not the melanocyte stimulating hormone; it's a totally different peptide. And this peptide, MCH, integrates both the exogenous and endogenous incoming sensorial data into the central nervous system. And this, of course, includes arousal and involves motivated and non-motivated or subtle behaviors. And furthermore, it's involved, this MCH, in energy homeostasis. And all this is linked, interestingly, to sleep and fatigue. So there is an association of energy status, uh, an addictive possibly associated modality because of motivational behaviors being linked to MCH, and indeed even um, reproductive physiology. So the mammalian gene for MCH is called the PMCH. And so the protein is, is of the same name. And there are peptides which make up the MCH family. So it's reminiscent of the POMC, but it's unique because it's a different protein altogether. So the mammalian PMCH gene actually has three exons and two introns. Both of the introns and the exons are, of course, a of variable length because of, uh, because of processing. And so the different sizes that you see for PMCH are going to vary according to convertase activity, much like the POMC. The transcribed product is formed by five components. It has a signal peptide, SP, and that's all in exon 1. It has a structural chain formed by exons one and two, a fusion of that. And then there are two MCH type gene related peptides, and these are called MGRPs. There's also the neuropeptide GE and the neuropeptide EI, and those uh, are encoded by exon two. Then there is the mature melanin concentrating hormone or MCH. And there are three N-terminal residues found from exon 2 and a residue by exon 2 and exon 3 combining to generate its codon. And then there are C-terminal residues, about 15 of these that are found from exon 3. So both MCH and the NEI are generated by, similar again to the POMC, proteolytic processing by cleaving between two dibasic amino acids. And you actually have two arginines or you have a lysine arginine dimer. And that's where the cleavage is going to occur for producing these different uh, peptides, all from this huge locus. And NGE, that particular peptide can be cleaved at a single site, that's a lysine residue. The neuropeptide E1 has an amidation site which is unique to it of course that's post-translational and that's at the c terminus <clears throat> you also have um the 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 protein characterization we can talk about a little bit both nge and nei are linear peptides and they're characterized by having a lot of negatively charged amino acids and the peptide itself NGE has never actually been isolated, but only inferred. So we don't know as much about it as we do the other ones. Now mature MCH is interesting because it is a disulfide. So it comes out uh, it, it, structurally in three-dimensional space is a cyclic peptide. And that's because it has a cysteine bridge and that's formed always between two residues in MCH Cysteine residue 7, and cysteine residue 16. So that particular ring structure is absolutely vital, that di- that disulfide, for binding to the receptor. So MCH requires that disulfide. That's a very important issue that will come up uh, for the pharmaceutical industry, obviously. Now, uh, Receptor for MCH is known as GPR24 or SLC1. And the SLC1 uh, was first named because it's a somatostatin-like coupled receptor 1. That's where that comes from. There, there are at least two receptors for MCH, MCHR1 and R2, and they tend to have some rather broad tissue specificity. Now, a little bit more about this, Um, mammals in general um, have, of course, mammary glands and they have a a unique set of bones in the inner ear and they have hair. Those are some uh, secondary characteristics of mammalian phenotype. Now, another important aspect of mammals, of course, is the acquisition of the placenta. And this occurred quite a long time ago, something like 160 million years ago. And of course, that acquisition of the placenta separates the so-called Eutherians from the Prototherians. Prototherians are animals like the platypus. And there's also the metatherians, and those actually are represented by modern marsupials. Now, amongst the Eutherians, you have a lot of geographical distinction and the clades separated out during tectonic plate movement somewhere between about 100, 110 to 100 million years ago. So you have Xenarthra. Those are anteaters and antithers and armadillos. You have the Afrotheria, and these are moles, shrews, tenrex, manatees, and elephants. And then you have the Boroeutheria, Those are rodents, primates, carnivores, and ungulates. And those all split probably around the same time, around 100 million years ago. So there's a lot of distinction here because when we look at the evolution of these hormones, we go back and do these phylogenetic trees. And you find that this PMCH gene is found way back in very early mammalian lineages. And it's somewhat... Uh, evolutionarily conserved. In fact, mature MCH is only 19 amino acids long. And again, it's typically processed between two uh, arginine residues. Sometimes also you can end with valine, and that's found in most of the mammals, and sometimes also isoleucine. Now, You've got a good indication of what MCH is structurally associated with. And I'm telling you, it does play a major role in the appetitive reward system. So let's go back and discuss this. There are widespread afferent projections throughout the locus coriolis noradrenergic system. And this supplies, obviously, norepinephrine throughout the CNS. Now, early studies have shown the basic organization that we just already went through, but more recent work has shown it's far more complex. And the complexity has to do with behavior in association with electrophysiological reaction mechanisms. And this can be associated with the processing of relevant and/or salient incoming information. So the reward pathway is more complex than we thought, Remember that you have projections coming from the ventral lateral preoptic nucleus to the main components of the ascending arousal system. And these include, of course, the RAFE, where serotonin is important, the TMN, where um, histidine is important, and then the PAG, where you have the dopaminergic circuit, right? The LDT, the PPT, both have acetylcholine, and the locus coriolis, again, is norepinephrine or noradrenaline, right? So you have multiple regions of the sublimbic system in association with this reward pathway. Now, the system itself contributes to the initiation and the maintenance of behavioral and indeed forebrain neuronal activity and all the multiple complex states that can be generated within that uh, organized system. And it's associated again with sensory stimulation. So within the waking state, the system modulates the collection and processing of all sensory information, through a diversity of concentration-dependent actions within cortical and subcortical sensory attentionary and memory circuits. So this involves a norepinephrine-dependent modulation of long-term alterations in synaptic strength, the alteration of chromatin retailoring, therefore modifying gene transcription rates and a series of other biochemical processes that involve signal transduction cascades. This all links up to a neurotransmitter system that is indeed directly associated with phenomenological experience dependent alterations within neuronal function and then as a readout behavior. So the ability of a given stimulus to increase, for example, the locus coriolis discharge activity actually is independent of the affective valence, which is is linked to two other really important behaviors, the appetitive versus the aversive. So you have an independence of the LC from the appetitive and aversive states, which are downstream from it. Okay. So this is, again, where the complex nature of this whole system arises. So you have basically this locus Coriolis, right? And it's linked to this noradrenergic producing system. And that, as it turns out, is the critical nuclei of the overall neuronal architecture which supports the interaction with and the navigation through the phenomenology of causation, cause and effect. Now, disruption of the locus coriolis, noradrenergic neurotransmission system, will contribute to cognitive and arousal dysfunctions. And this can be associated, of course, with a variety of psychiatric disorders including attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, as well as certain sensu strictu affective disorders, including the post-traumatic stress syndrome. So the locus coriolis noradrenergic system is a target for multiple pharmacological targeting. And it's received a lot of attention in the last, oh, three decades easily. But it's also linked to memory and arousal dysfunction. And this again is associated with a variety of behavioral as well as cognitive disorders. Now, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, or the SCN, serves also as a biological clock. We talked about this um, a couple of months ago when we talked about the aging process. Now, the output of this goes to the ventral and dorsal subparaventricular zones and the dorsal medial nucleus of the, of course, hypothalamus, always in association with the hypothalamus, the DMH. So the neurons in the ventral and dorsal subparaventricular zones are crucial for rhythms of body temperature, and the outputs are integrated into the DMH, uh, that's the hypothalamus, remember, with all kinds of other inputs. And the DMH neurons indeed drive the circadian sleep cycle, but also um, biological and behavioral stimulatory activity, feeding, and an association with corticosteroid secretion. So there are cycles of body temperature that are maintained by the subparaventricular zone and all of the um, medial projections therefrom to the medial preoptic area. And of course, the DMH, okay, the dorsomedial nucleus of the hypothalamus is the origin of projections to that VLPO. And that's all linked up to sleep cycles. And of course, the production of the corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH. Now, there are neurons also associated with the CRH that are linked to the paraventricular nucleus, and that's for this corticosteroid cycling, and to the lateral hypothalamic orexin and melanin-concentrating hormone neurons for wakefulness and, again, the appetitive feeding cycles. So the integration of the SPZ and the DMH allows for the circadian rhythm to adapt and adjust to multiple environmental stimuli, such as light and temperature. And that again, works through this ventral medial hypothalamic and arcuate hypothalamic nuclei. There are visceral sensory inputs, there are cognitive influences from the prefrontal cortex, and of course there are emotional inputs from multiple regions of the limbic system, including of course the amygdala. Okay. So hopefully now you're starting to get an idea of this system and where we're putting it together. Now, there are metabolic and immunological associations of physical disorders that can then cause an interruption of psychotropic reactions, such as an anti-inflammatory stimulation, which can then generate a chronic anxiety or depression in the CNS, which then feeds back to metabolic and immunological disorders. So this is known as the medical illness, anxiety, depression, pro-inflammatory, chronicity cycle. Okay. So when you get a burst of anti-inflammatory response, the CNS responds by increasing pro-inflammatory cytokines, which then generates an immunological disorder, hence a metabolic disorder, because immunometabolism is linked to uh, fatty acid and carbohydrate metabolism. And then this then generates the neuroendocrine system, in a disordered secretion of corticosteroids which then is associated with chronic anxiety and depression okay so that's how the cycle seems to function from the central nervous system and associated with the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and even with the cardiovascular system okay so you're getting an idea again more about how this is all put together so If you think about how the various behaviorals and associated modalities of the brain are linked, you have the prefrontal cortex associated with executive judgment, and then you have other temporal regions involved in movement and sensation, and then deep within the limbic system, you have this reward pathway, which is highly uh, innervated to the memory loci which are also highly innervated with pain nociception from the periphery and coordination via the basal hindbrain, which is involved in uh, the vision nucleus. So you can see how all of these are interrelated, right? And a major association in the reward pathway is the dopaminergic pathway. So you have dopamine and you have the dopamine receptor, right? And so these two are going to be the major function of the reward pathway. So you've got dopamine released, binds to its receptor. You also have then on the receiving end, the reception of dopamine, you have opioid receptors. And these opioid receptors will also pick up, uh, produced, endogenally produced endorphins, which act as neuromodules.